Welcome to Good Game, your no BS insights for crypto founders. It's possible that if you're building an NFT marketplace, your numbers go down in the spare market because NFT speculation is, is dead or whatever. But instead of looking at your absolute number, you should look at your number, your let's say your trading volume as a percentage of someone else's, another big player. So Tensor's, if you pick Tensor as an example, you should look at the trading volume on Tensor versus Magic Eden. If that number, if that number, which is the market share grows in the next year or two, I think you're going to be in a really good spot because when the bull market comes back, you're going to dominate everyone and you're going to grow faster than anyone else does. Yeah, that's a solid point, which is the market today, although it's very hard to build for because there aren't enough users in the space or they start fleeing or whatever, is the fact that to look at the overall pie over the next decade and how many users will come into the space and how much of that will you capture based on the product you're building. Looking for your next startup idea in crypto? Check out our request for startups list and get inspired at alliance.xyz forward slash ideas. Welcome to Good Game. So there's a lot happening in crypto. And I think it's been a while since we, we've actually covered what's happening in crypto, where we are today. And a lot of our listeners have asked for a quick summary on where we are in the bear market. So maybe we could use this time to discuss all the things that are happening, where we are in the bear market. Is there going to be another cycle? I've started seeing tweets about that, um, which is exactly the opposite to uh, Kyle Salmani's tweet that there will never be another bear market, if you remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man the things uh we say during different times is, it's great i don't have a specific agenda but i know that many 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 people are worried especially if they've not been through a bear market before yeah and even those who went, who went through a bear market before i wouldn't be surprised if they're not operating under 100 percent. personally i know that it takes it takes me three cycles uh, three bear markets to really develop the immunity against it. So th this bear market is actually the first bear market where I feel completely calm. Last bear market was actually really painful, even though it wasn't my first one. Yeah. So I just want to talk about like how things are on the high level. Uh, you know, earlier this year, at the beginning of the year, I tweeted that uh, the second year of the bear market is usually the most painful year of the cycle assuming the four-year cycles will go on. But the second year is the most painful because it's the one, it's the year of apathy. It's the one year where your friends, your parents stop asking you about crypto. Well, they ask you if you're okay. <laughs> and the media stop caring about crypto. The market volatility quantitatively and, and objectively it has gone down. The realized volatility for, or implied volatility for Bitcoin right now is like in the 30s. In the bull market, it was over 60, well over 60. Yep. So the market market also doesn't care anymore. Yep. Um, if you're a founder, your employees are probably thinking of leaving crypto. And we also know that many founders in crypto have either pivoted away from crypto or are thinking of pivoting away from crypto back into AI, for example. Just on that point alone, um, we've had many startups that, that we've invested in that ended up pivoting straight to AI, which is a very interesting move. Most startups that we invested in that, that pivoted into AI, they actually come from an AI background. So I tell them, I don't know if they come to, to me for advice, but they certainly come to me for support of this pivot. So I tell them, you know, if this is something that you really believe in and you have real domain expertise, by all means, go for it. But you should know that, you know, developing domain expertise in crypto takes a long time and pivoting away from crypto at this time of the cycle, people generally regret. 
everyone that I know that pivoted away from crypto in the last bear market has regretted it. So, I mean, even if you think about all of the NFT marketplaces that competed with uh, OpenSea and they all ended up pivoting away to something else, I'm definitely sure they, they, they regretted that decision. Yeah. So last bear market, OpenSea had at least three competitors mm-hmm. that built pretty much the exact same product, no differentiation from OpenSea. And they all pivoted right before the, the outside of the NFT bull market, which was in early 2021. Mm-hmm. And OpenSea didn't do anything special except for they just survived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just survived long enough to see the bull market come back. And that's how they uh, ascended to uh, the unicorn or decacorn status. Yep. And I, I, I feel that uh, this is probably one of the biggest tests. You know, one test is like euphoria of like the bull market and the other is the euphoria of the, the bear market, right? And that's very different than markets that are, that are, you know, like in the NFT and other places, I'm oh, sorry, AI and, and other sectors, which is the fact that you don't have like a publicly traded token that represents your industry yeah. outside of the, you know, stock market that is. But you could think of like crypto as a hyper-financialized version of emotions. <laughs> and really it just depends on where you are in the market and how you want to build products. But uh, I've seen so many founders that have either made the decision to leave crypto and they've regretted it, or I've seen them pivot into areas where they've ended up ultimately failing. And the question is always like, how much mental strength and grit do you have to continue to pave the path for your startup? And that's, I think, true. That's generalized across all startups, right? Like, so as long as you have the fortitude to continue and building, success will follow. It just depends on how closely you listen to your customers and all of the other things that we typically talk about. So what are some of the things that are happening now that, that is causing this... Um widespread apathy or worry, mental stress? One is uh, the regulatory climate. And I think there's a couple like things, like narratives to think about, right? One is, you know, SBF imploding created a lot of regulatory pressure for the SEC and other agencies like the Department of Justice and, and others, which is forcing them to ultimately kill crypto because they ended up missing SBF and other narratives that were going on. And now there is a lot of pressure to crack down on crypto, regulate it, completely dismantle it, as to some of the regulators are saying. Yeah. And the reasons for this is, is probably very political, which is, you know, a lot of the politicians were involved in accepting SBF's donation. Yeah. And so there's some reputational risks. There is risks of like the dollar dominance also, right? Uh, when you're exiting the dollar system, you're exiting to a completely crypto native system. That's number two. And then I'd say number three is just primarily like regulatory. And and that's something that we can talk a bit more about and what's happening with Binance and Coinbase and all of the other startups that are building this space. And really the ego, I feel like yeah. some of the regulators and policymakers, they're just here trying to leave a legacy. And they think of killing crypto as something that cements their, their legacy. Yeah. Especially on the left. Um, yeah. it, so for, for people who are not familiar with the, the regulatory landscape in the U.S., the Democrats, which is the left, they are really hostile towards crypto. And the right, which is the Republicans, I think on balance, they're more friendly. On balance, they're neutral. They're mm-hmm. neutral, but they're more friend- certainly more friendly than, than the left. And there are some uh, open supporters within the Republican Party. And there are some naysayers, but on balance, they're, they're fairly fairly neutral. It's really the left that, that wants to kill uh, crypto. That's right. 
And because of that, there's this huge pressure on Binance and Coinbase, right? And so an example of this is Coinbase. So when Gary Gensler sued Kraken and uh, Bitmax, or not Bitmax, Bitfinex. No, is it Bitfinex? Oh, Bitrex, sorry. Bitrex, <laughs> Bitrex and, and, and Kraken. And they sued them on, on the premise of like staking as a security, right? And users should be uh, accredited or, or, or there should be, you know, certain types of rules and parameters in place so that users can follow the framework in terms of being able to invest into like Ethereum and earn staking revenues or earnings. And so they got sued and Kraken then replied and said, you've never given us any requirements on exactly how we should sign up and fill out the necessary documents to become regulated in the sense of being able to offer these types of securities. And and I think that's the fundamental problem we're in right now, which is the SEC is not giving us clarification into how we should operate crypto within the United States. And they're doing this on purpose because it creates this kind of like gray area where the SEC can go after anyone at any point without any requirements. Re- regulation and by by enforcement. Exactly. Because they want to like dictate exactly what they can do, what they cannot do, right? And so Coinbase ended up suing SEC about a couple of weeks ago. And they said, give us requirements. Like, what should a crypto startup like us do? What is the filing process? Give us some framework so that we can start to follow the rules and regulations. And then they had seven days to reply back. And they ended up replying back on the seventh day saying that, well, we need another four months to think about it and we'll get back to you. And that's kind of where we were left off. And so that's kind of the state of crypto today from the regulatory perspective, which is there is no clarity and people are operating in the gray area. And the SEC is aggressively going after every crypto like behemoth, and uh, forcing them to comply to rules that are, have been made since the 1920s. Yeah, but um, I, I feel like most of their regulatory FUD is in the U.S. Because outside the U.S., I actually see fairly positive things developing. Huge. For example, I think Hong Kong and Dubai are, are the most friendly jurisdictions right now in crypto. They are. And th- the Hong Kong story is extremely counterintuitive. And it's a huge narrative violation because Hong Kong does not have any independence from Beijing. And the fact that Hong Kong is embracing crypto, they absolutely 100% got the blessings of Chairman Xi. Yep. Why is that? Like, what's the thinking there? Because, you know, China is, I mean, I remember China FUD from 2015. Like, I mean, and it's always, they've always been against crypto. And so what's the st- sudden p- pivot? Yeah, so I'm s- speculating here. I don't know for sure. I've talked to some folks in Hong Kong. But the thing with China over the last 10 years, since the very first China bans Bitcoin news, is that I don't think China is fundamentally against crypto. What China is fundamentally against is retail speculation. Because even before crypto, the retail traders in China have got burned many, many times by the various Ponzi schemes and, and fraud and scams. And the shitcoin speculation is something that China does not want to see happen again. Mm-hmm. That will kill, literally kill the lives of, of many. And that's why they're using Hong Kong as a testbed, because technically it's impossible for retail traders in mainland to gain access to exchanges in Hong Kong. The entities that can have access to, to trading in Hong Kong are the institutions, and China seems to be fine with it. So that, that's one thing. They're, 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 they're against you know, speculation, shikong speculation. That's, that's one thing. And they're probably also worried about capital control. You know, using Bitcoin to evade capital control is a very 
clear use case of, of crypto. So they're, they're certainly worried about that. But once again, that's why they limit this whole experiment to Hong Kong. Interesting. And so basically the people who are benefiting from this Hong Kong initiative are the institute, you know, institutions, you know, venture capitalists, exchanges in Hong Kong, but not the retail traders, the individuals in, in, in mainland China. There still has to be a deeper reason for this, right? Like, yeah. I, I, like, is it, yes. is this too? Yeah. That's what I want to get to. So, so I, I talked about why. Hong Kong versus mainland. But now the question is why okay. Hong Kong is embracing crypto. Yeah. So there are a number of theories, but the one that I like the most from talking to people in Hong Kong is that I think China just wants to do something fundamentally different from the US. China wants to embrace things that the US bans, that it's as simple as that. For, 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 for the exact same reason that the US embraced the internet 20 years ago when China banned Google, YouTube, Twitter, Yes. and develop its own firewall. China is pulling the same playbook back to the US. That's fundament fundamentally what it is. I think China is in a lot of, or is facing a lot of challenges in terms of economic development. And I think that the party understands that you just have to do something different. If you don't take risks, if you don't embrace new technologies, you're going to fall behind. Yep, I see. So Hong Kong is a test bed, is the way That's I right. see it. Okay. And if it, if it works out really well, then they could create its own version of it within China is the way I would see it. You could see Hong Kong being more of an open platform, like that would directly compete with the US as an yep. example. And then they'd probably develop their own like firewalled version of crypto within China. And I think I've already seen some of this, like uh, even like uh, I've seen an NFT, was it Alibaba that launched some sort of NFT marketplace? But the narrative they took out of it was the token piece and they kept it just NFTs and they took out speculative, the word speculative. Yeah. And so you could think of these as stickers essentially within games, right? And so I do think there will be like stripped down versions of like crypto that would be primarily targeted to Chinese US, uh, Chinese retail. The downside of picking Hong Kong is that Hong Kong historically has been a financial center, not a tech center. Well, there's some overlap, right? I mean, with financials. and there, There's some so, overlap. So yeah. like, you know, this is not my opinion, but but folks in Hong Kong told me that they think that there will be a new generation of centralized exchanges emerging out of Hong Kong. There has to be. There, there, there's so much void that needs to be filled by some of the exchanges that are going under, right? Yeah. However, they're not super optimistic about the true like crypto tech, you know, mm. products that are truly crypto native. On the other hand, startups. there's a benefit of picking Hong Kong, which is that Hong Kong is literally uh, next to Shenzhen. Shenzhen is the tech center in China. China is, is yeah. basically the Silicon Valley of, of China. So the, the, I mean, at, at the end of the day, physical proximity still matters. So this is like, I think it's a double-edged sword of picking Hong Kong. And we're seeing hedge funds, crypto hedge funds and VCs and entrepreneurs going back to China from Singapore. So a lot of mainland Chinese entrepreneurs went to Singapore over the last couple of years, but recently they're moving back to Hong Kong. So that's a very interesting trend that we're seeing. Dubai is another very very interesting example. I don't know much about Dubai, but it seems like they're really trying to embrace crypto. Yeah, um, yeah, I can tell. I can talk a bit about Dubai and what I'm hearing. Obviously, not full context here, but Dubai is obviously very open to crypto. In fact, many of the crypto influencers you see on Twitter have now moved to Dubai, uh, both from a cost of living perspective, the luxury perspective, and you know, pro crypto regulations perspective. Right. So those are like the three ideas, and um, 
What's happening also, like at least what I'm hearing uh, from India is that like a lot of the founders in India are now moving to Dubai because of that. India has become very harsh in the way they're regulating crypto and crypto startups. Um, even the taxes are so high that people are afraid to even buy crypto for that reason. And so we're seeing like a cohort of Indian founders are moving to Dubai. And that started with Polygon. And so mm. the Polygon entire base moved to, and I would say the entire base, but a large a part of the Polygon team ended up moving to Dubai. And if you know, in uh, Dubai, historically, Dubai uh, has a high propensity of Indian people. In fact, you could say that, you know, Dubai was built on the backs of Indians, right? And so there's a huge population of Indians there. And um, it seems very natural for Indian founders to move to Dubai if they want to build a startup. And so from a tech perspective, I know that there will be some really strong tech startups that will be built based on like this migration of Indian founders and others that are coming to Dubai, although it seems very speculative right now. And so from what I've heard is that the communities in Dubai are very, I don't know, like uh, they're not authentic. They're more, more or less building startups to scam people or whatever. I'm just hearing a lot of interesting narratives there. Yeah, I hear but a lot of scammers in Dubai. It's yeah, really same. weird. Same. But I think that will eventually wash away. Yeah. And I think it's just uh, a matter of time. Uh, and so I'm hearing really good things about Dubai as well. And I think I see, I see a lot of like Indian founders are moving to Dubai for that reason. Yeah. In fact, um, there was a recent article that talked about all the millionaires in India. And don't quote me on this, but 30% of the millionaires left India because of taxes to Dubai. Just, and I'm not even talking about crypto. I'm just talking people that have wealth that are moving to Dubai just based on the cost of living, the taxes, et cetera. Dubai is zero tax, right? For um, um, for income, I think it's one percent. One percent, and so it's relatively cheap to live there from a tax perspective. Cost of living is still cheaper than U.S. by like I don't know twenty thirty percent. Okay, so it's it's a good place to live, at least from that perspective. Yeah, and then there is Europe uh, in the U.K. So Europe, yeah. they passed Mika a yeah. couple months ago. Yeah, I'm not an expert in Europe. Or in law in general, but I did talk to a few uh, of our European based or Europe based founders. They were certainly not skeptical of it. They were generally fairly, you know, supportive of uh, Mika. So Mika is basically the, the first set of laws that are related to crypto that were passed mm -hmm. in a major jurisdiction, quote unquote, major jurisdiction. And if I remember correctly, the main point of it was to protect consumers among many other things, but consumer protection was, was a big one. And I thought that was probably part of, uh, or part of it was probably a result of the FTX drama in, uh, in November last year. But overall, they at least provided some clarity. So I think on balance, Mika is a positive development for, for Europe. And then there's the UK, you know, A6 and Z moved their, or opened an office in, in the UK last week. And then I also think that Latin America is largely unaffected. We're seeing actually a lot of startups applying to Alliance from, uh, from Latin America, yep. building the basic, the core infrastructure of you know, on-ramp, off-ramp exchanges, that type of stuff that, that happened in the US five years ago. So, Although I have some pushback on that. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they are embracing crypto, I think. Yep. Uh, they're, they're playing catch-up, but they are, I think the policymakers are, are neutral on balance and unaffected by and large. And so... I mean, I, I don't know that for sure, but the fact that we're seeing more and more uh, founders from Latin America tells me that they feel comfortable building crypto startups in Latin America. We're also seeing a couple of founders from Africa as well. Yeah, um, we're starting to see some African startups come out too. 
which is pretty cool. So overall, I feel like across the world, it's really the US that is being extremely hostile towards crypto. Yeah, and I think it's just a backlash of what happened with SBF, personally. I think that's yeah. what it is. Someone has to pay for it, and it's just the people that are building crypto that are paying for it. Yeah. But let's look at it the other viewpoint, uh, which is like politicians that are looking at the actions of SEC. I feel like there's a negative play here, too, is that they're overly regulating crypto or talking about crypto, which he should be, you know, Gary and the team should be thinking about other things, right? And so I feel like there's just an over-index on crypto, and I feel like that's going to create some backlash for Gary Gensler and team. And I think we're going to start to see that, too, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, you're al- you already are, right? Like, I think the judge for the Binance US and SEC case talked about, why are you telling them to shut down or like freeze their assets? Yep. What's the point of this is what the judge said. The judge said, like, let them just, you know, if there are, if there's money in, in offshore accounts, have them move it back onshore. And why freeze customer assets? Why, why create more complexity for, why should the users have to pay for this? And so I do think that SEC is getting, like, whatever they're doing, they're, it's probably good for crypto in the long run because they're creating so much like negative headwinds that people that are in like, that are judges and et cetera are saying like, what's the point of any of this? Yeah. So maybe there is some light at the end of the tunnel, but it just looks really bad right now, just based on this. I, I was also thinking the other day that the, uh, the, the powers that be are paying more attention to AI right now, which in the short term is a nice distraction to crypto. I mean, people are worried about the, the dangers of AI. Yep. Yep. So there's less focus on, on crypto right now, which is a short term positive for our industry. But anyway. Yeah. It seems like AI has taken some uh, limelight away, which is great. We'll see if uh, that continues to sustain as we get to build crypto back up from, from what's happened over the past few years. So what advice would you give to founders and builders and other professionals, investors, you know, working in this space when it comes to how to think about the regulatory environment? Should you be worried? Is there any actionable steps you can take? For me, I, I take the optimistic route which is eventually all of this will be figured out. And so the best thing a founder can do is not worry about the regulatory FUD, stay focused and build. And that's the asymmetric opportunity, right? Which is for every opportunity that's in the space, there's at least 100 startups that are building for that opportunity. In crypto, it's probably less because people are worried about the regulatory FUD and all the other FUD that comes out. And so your opportunity to make it in crypto, there's a higher chance for you to make it in crypto so as long as you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, meaning like, don't worry about the FUD, don't worry about any of that, things will resolve if you believe in the core technology that crypto brings to the space. But in the US, there, there is undeniably an increased risk for founders, right, in, in terms of law enforcement. So, well, it depends, right? Like if you're, if you're doing scams and stuff like that, or hacks or whatever, then yeah, absolutely. So but if you're building like... I don't know, like a, a developer tooling or some infrastructure or centralized business. I don't think there is an increased risk. But if you're launching a token or building like a DeFi or perhaps even NFT marketplace, there's certainly an increased risk, right? Yes and no. I mean, like uh, if you look at Uniswap and DYDX, they're both in the US, right? Mm-hmm. They've launched perfect changes or just traditional exchanges. And, you know, they launched their own tokens that's publicly traded. And so... If anyone that has stake in this, it's going to be those two, right? And so those are the two that are going to get hit with regulatory FUD over a small startup of 10 or 15 is the way I see it. So DYDX actually uh, geofences US users, I believe. 
And this is also a very concrete, non-legal advice that our legal counsel gives to to our um, founders is that if you're building something in DeFi, the safest thing to do is to geofence US users. Yeah. So, I mean, like there's many ways to argue against it as well, but that is probably the best way is like if you're going to, if you're a founder in the space, you geofence the US and um, build for the communities that are outside of the US as an example. What I tell our, our founders who are in the very early stage is something really basic and I think intuitive is that the biggest risk that will kill you is not finding product market fit. The biggest 100%. risk for you is your product sucks. It is not yeah. that the regulations will kill you. The re- regulatory risk is something that will come way after. So as a result, at this stage, try not to break the law. And as long as you try to do that, you'll be fine. Uh, you, the, the, all the regulatory fud is probably a distraction. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, like, if you have the ability to make, build a generational startup that can create wealth for everyone, especially the U.S., you know, do it. And if there's FUD or, or, or regulatory challenges, then, you know, bake that into your, your roadmap is the way I would see it. So aside from um, regulations, what else are you seeing in crypto at large? What are some of the trends? Yeah. Another trend that I'm seeing is um, NFT marketplaces like Blur and Tensor. Blur recently launched their lending product called Blend. Mm-hmm. And um, it quickly took number one spot as uh, the premier NFT lending marketplace, which I thought was very interesting in the space. Mm-hmm. And we, we've had this question asked too, which is what is going to happen with OpenSea and Magic Eden and all of these traditional exchanges? Are they going to go, is it going to be similar to like, I don't know, eBay and Amazon or Craigslist or whatever? whatever. Yep. Where do we think all of this is going to go? That was an interesting question that, that, that was brought up to us and thinking more about it. Well, I guess, what do you think about it? That specific question? Yeah, generally, like, um, okay, so you have traditional NFT marketplaces. Phase one of NFT was traditional NFT marketplaces, right? So I can go and buy an NFT on an exchange. The second phase is, you know, pro trading, right? So now you have people that can get financial data. They can do advanced trading, graphs, whatever, charts, whatever. And now you have the third phase, which is building other products for traders so that they can create more, you know, think about capital efficiency with lending, et cetera. So you have this third phase now that you have other products that are being built alongside NFT pro trading marketplaces that capture more users, stickier, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like where we are in the NFT marketplace as an example. Yep. And the question that was asked to us was, do we think Magic Eden and OpenSea are the phase one? Do you think they'll be relevant moving forward? Yep. Or are they going to go similar pathway as, let's say, Craigslist or something where they become ir- irrelevant over time? So uh, I I don't have a strong opinion on whether or not OpenSea and Magic Eden will thrive. But I w- what I've found is that um, in crypto, there's always these constant waves of enabling technologies. A recent example is uh, compressed NFTs on, on Solana. There's mm-hmm. always these new things that are happening. Some of them are really big, but they don't they're only big in hindsight. Some of them are, are irrelevant, but it often takes one or two really big de- decisions, strategic decisions from the founders to turn things around. So right now, OpenSea and Magic Eden, they are losing market share to Blur and, and um, Tensor, but they have so much money. They raise so much money from the bull market, the, the biggest bull market of all time. And I think they'll just survive long enough to see these new enabling technologies come in 
and have one or two opportunities to make really good, important decisions. And, and this is something I've seen not just in NFTs, but just in general, like things like bear market is the best time for startups to, to capture uh, market share and to outshine their competitors in terms of making important strategic moves. And the reason why this is important is because I have founders coming to me. There's in so much pain. Yeah. I talked to a founder last week, you and I talked to a founder last week and yep. he felt destroyed like mentally. Yep. It's like, no matter what I try, I just can't seem to grow my numbers. But this happens not just to him. This happens to basically 90, over 99% of all companies in crypto. When you're in the bear market, there's nothing you can do to grow your numbers because the market is against you and you can't fight the market. And so what I actually recommend people to do for investor or, or builder is instead of looking at absolute metrics, mm -hmm. so absolute number of data active users, for example, you look at relative metrics. So you measure your own traction versus the market. So taking the NFT marketplace as an example, mm -hmm. it's possible that if you're building an NFT marketplace, your numbers go down yeah. in the spare market because NFT speculation is, is dead or whatever. But instead of looking your, at your absolute number, you should look at your number, your let's say your trading volume as a percentage of someone else's, another big player. So Tensor's, for example, if you pick Tensor as an example, you should look at the trading volume on Tensor versus Magic Eden. If that number, if that number, which is the market share grows in the next year or two, I think you're going to be in a really good spot because when the bull market comes back, you're going to dominate everyone yep. and you're going to grow faster than everyone else does. Yeah, that's a, that's a solid point, which is the market today, although it's very hard to build for because there aren't enough users in the space or they start fleeing or whatever, is the fact that to look at the overall pie over the next decade and how many users will come into the space and how much of that will you capture based on the product you're building. Let's just have fun and talk about what would happen to Magic Eden OpenSea and where, where could they go, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like we're going through the bundling phase of NFT trading or NFTs, which is, you know, NFTs will, you know, like serving the NFT market first was just exchanges, right? Now you have lending and I think you're going to have custody, you're going to have other types of products that are being built horizontally that would enable people that are trading on those platforms to stay on those platforms and not leave. Mm -hmm. You know, if, even if you think about like cross-chain margining, right? Like get, lending your NFTs and then using that as a way to trade on a perp, for example. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that already if, if you look at it. Like we've had a bunch of startups that have applied to our program that are building NFT perps. Mm -hmm. And they work great as standalone products, but could it work even better when you have a, a network effect of hundreds and thousands of users that are using your product on the spot exchange, as an example. So someone like Coinbase makes a lot of sense for them to launch a perp exchange, right? Because they already have millions of users that are using their product today. So the question is, what is going to happen to NFT marketplaces like Magic Eden and OpenSea? Well, me personally, I think that they need to, they're going to be forced to innovate. They have a lot of capital, as you mentioned, and they can, they can compete with the likes of Blur and Tensor. The question is, are they going to compete directly by following their footsteps or are they going to sidestep them and build other types of products that will completely take them off guard. To me, it seems like right now, Magic Eden and OpenSea are following Blur and Tender's footsteps. I think this is a trend I, I'm seeing elsewhere as well, especially in DeFi. So this horizontalization. Yes. We product. talked about this at the in uh, our last pod, the end state of DeFi. Yeah. And I actually tweeted this at least two years ago. I said the backend of DeFi will fragment, backend mean basically, basically smart contracts. And the front end will consolidate. Yeah. And by that, I mean the consumer-facing products, they will all try to kill each other yeah. by competing with each other. 
Yeah. Like Aave, Curve, they launched their own stablecoin yep. to compete with incumbents. And then, you know, Uniswap launching their NFT products. Everyone is trying to compete with everyone else on the front end. The same thing is happening on Solana. One of our Solana startups, uh, Hubble, they, they built a stablecoin a couple of years ago. And then recently they started building a Yarn type of product, like vaults, trading vaults. And they're also looking at, looking at other opportunities as well, like, uh, such as DEXs and, and lending. So everyone is trying to look at everyone else and trying to compete. And this is like something that happens across the board in, in the bear market, in NFTs and DeFi and other consumer products. I feel like um, we're taking the backwards approach, right? Which is we see the small little niche, right? And we're building for that niche. And turns out as crypto expands that there's a bigger niche, right? That kind of encapsulates all the smaller sectors in the space. And slowly but surely, it's going to get bundled, as you mentioned. Yeah, And I think that's probably the best way to look at it right now, which is we're all building for this specific problem. But in fact, there's a bigger problem, right? And you have that as an element. Then the second element is like, your margin is my opportunity in the bear market, which is, you know, now that margins are compressed, behemoths like Uniswap has to think about ways to capture more margin. And so that's why they launched the NFT marketplace. They launched a wallet because when the next speculative market comes in, you know, they want to make sure that they can turn the flywheel on and capture as much margin as possible. So speaking of, of that, a lot of people are, again, really worried. And one of those common questions that they ask me is, um, when does the bull market come back? And what will it look like? Do you have any thoughts on that? Because um, everyone is thinking about what the next bull market looks like and trying to position for that future. Yeah. There's very little to build for during the bear market because the market yeah. is so small. Mm-hmm. But if you have a vision for you know, five years from now, you can build for that vision starting now. But yeah. w- what does that bull market look like? I have an answer and it's not a pretty answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear it. Um, I'm trying to think about like all the bull markets, I, bear markets I've been a part of 2013, 14 uh, or 14, 15. I remember Ethereum. And so like that was like the narrative and then building on top of that, which led to 2017. 2017 then was, you know, building products that actually make sense on Ethereum. And, you know, DeFi summer happened, right? And now you have so many different use cases you could build for now that could touch the real world. Social being one of them, financial products. So I feel like we're getting closer to being able to touch the consumer is the way I see it. So my hunch is the next, what's going to lead the next wave is going to be whoever gets to touch the consumer first. Is that along the lines of what you're thinking? No. No. Okay. Tell me what you're thinking. I think that until 3 billion people around the world have installed a browser extension type of wallets, what we're going to continue to see is speculation. Speculation is what brings the next wave of users. And that may not sound pretty, but it's okay. Because I continue to think that speculation will bring the first billion or two users. And these new users will stress test the infrastructure. So last bull market, we realized that our blockchains didn't scale. The right. fees of Ethereum went to like $200 per transfer. Yeah. And that incentivized a whole new set of entrepreneurs building layer two scaling solutions or mm-hmm. alt layer ones like Solana. And then the next bull market, same thing is going to happen, but in different flavor, right? Uh, there will be speculation again, and then it'll raise our transaction fees again. And maybe the scaling 
infrastructure that will come out of the next bull market will be, I don't know, something like app chain rollups, something to that effect. I don't know what it is, but it could be that. Last two bear markets or last two cycles, we first had a ICO bullshit in 2017, yep. which was the first wave of speculation. And then we had a bunch of JPEGs, JPEG speculation. That was the last cycle. So we went from shitcoins in the form of fungible tokens to shitcoins in the, in the form of non-fungible tokens. I don't know what the next one might look like, but it's still going to be shitcoins. You could still yeah, be I mean, like, trading in a different, different flavor. 100% agree with the speculative nature. So not arguing against that. What I am saying is this insight came after speaking with Kane last time. And usually like Kane, the way I see Kane and his perspectives are, he's like from the future of crypto, right? Like every time he builds something, then it starts to become a trend. So an example of this was when he first started synthetics, oracles was a big problem. And he started building out his own proprietary oracles. And then, you know, Chainlink came and it powered all of DeFi as an example, right? And there's these trends that he's doing every cohort that, kind of enables a whole host of different products being built. Liquidity mining program, as an example, was another one that he created or him and his team started. And that became kind of like across the board generalizable, right? And before we ended our conversation, he said, I'm like, so what do you think is the future DeFi? And what he said was, it's being able to build it so that everyone can access it, like making it much more accessible. And, you know, this could be the advent of like EIP 4337, we talked a bit about intense, whatever. And I think what's missing in the space right now is the fact that we don't have hundreds of millions of people, right, using the product, to your point. Like you mentioned 3 billion people that have to download an extension as an example. That is what's preventing us from getting hundreds of millions, like to making things actually work within all the flywheels that are being created. So could account abstraction, EIP 4337, apps that can essentially abstract away the entire crypto, you know, complexities that that plague our industry. Could we abstract all of that away and make consumer products that look very consumery, lizard brain-like, that allows anyone to be able to access these apps in a very seamless way? Could this be what helps lead us to the next bull run? I don't know. My point related to that is, yes, those, you know, account abstraction or, you know, new types of wallet experiences can bring the next billion users. But I think in order to bring the next billion users, we don't necessarily need that. Hmm. Because what we need is basically Jerome Powell turning the printer back on and then everyone started speculating on shitcoins again. And then in order to do that, yes, yes. they're going to have to install MetaMask or whatever hardware wallet. And then they come into this uh, ecosystem. There is a whole new set of games for them to play. Last time around, the game was NFTs and the one before was ICOs. The next one, it could be something different, different type of games. But these games are speculative in nature and they will incentivize the consumers to install a MetaMask and play the game. Yeah, that's a good point. Without speculation, there's no reason for people to, to install MetaMask. It's way too much friction. You have to open Chrome yeah. Store, search for MetaMask, install, and then learn how to sign transactions, all that stuff. It's too much By friction. By the way, my, my working thesis is that next bull run, MetaMask will lose to Uniswap, Uniswap wallet. Mm. I'll tell you why. Why? Okay. So do you remember like our uh, last po- uh, DeFi podcast, I talked about how my retail friends created a working group where they would help each other install the MetaMask wallet, send them ETH, and then teach them how to use Uniswap, right? Mm-hmm. And primarily all of them did, made these working groups because they wanted to speculate on shitcoins. Mm-hmm. And now you could just tell someone to download the Uniswap wallet. I downloaded and I used it and it's very easy to use. And I think what's going to end up happening is 
next bull run, Uniswap is going to capture a large part of that speculative market. But to build on your hypothesis, I think what you described is very likely to happen. But to build on top of your hypothesis, I think the wallet that will win will depend on the type of game that will emerge from our ecosystem in the next bull market. The reason why people install Uniswap or the reason why people might install Uniswap as opposed to MetaMask is because the dominant game today is ERC-20 shitcoin trading. Yep. But if the dominant game becomes NFT trading, then I think OpenSea or Blur or Tensor or whatever, I think their wallet will win. Yes, we'll have to see where it goes. But I'm thinking about like Uniswap's like NFT strategy as well, right? Like if you can buy NFTs and tokens from one app, which app would you use? Who's going to capture a speculative nature of the market? So it's very hard to say which one is going to be the next wave. Like if, I, But I, I still think it's going to be tokens, um, no matter what. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, just look at Pepe. I mean, it's just... Oh, so here, here's another good story I, w- I wanted to tell you, which is I was uh, working out with my trainer, boxing, right? And my trainer is, you could think of him as a average retail crypto investor. Mm-hmm. So I was in the middle of like this uh, exercise and then he just stopped me. He goes, yo, I just got a notification from crypto.com and they're talking about Pepe. Should I buy this, Imran? <laughs> but I, I didn't, you know, and this was when Pepe first started taking off. Yeah. But imagine, you know, hundreds of thousands of people using this type of product, right? And they all get the notification about Pepe. And the first thing they do is like, should I put $50 in it, right? Yeah. And so I still think the... Uh, fungible aspect of a token is what makes the speculative market always be like token first. And then it leads to like other asset classes that down the line. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, like maybe Uniswap has that edge where it will capture that speculative nature and then start to sell them other products, which is kind of the bundling phase that we've talked about. You know, maybe Uniswap could become the de facto bundled product that will give you access to the crypto space. So it seems like you and I agree on... The fact that speculation is going to bring, will once again bring the next wave of users and create the next bull market by definition. Mm-hmm. I mean, because like people talk about how crypto should move beyond the speculative phase into this utility phase. I think that's just the most midwit take of all time in, in crypto. Like speculation is the thing that crypto fundamentally brings. Yep. Hyper financialization. Why don't you want to embrace it? Yep. The hyper financialization is a feature, not a bug. It, it's a new, it creates new consumer experience. Why get rid of that, that one thing that crypto fundamentally enabled? I mean, speculation for me is utility. <laughs> the ability for a retail user to make money or to lose money yep. is a feature. Yep. It is utility. So I think we should embrace it and that, that will happen again in the next bull market. And maybe Uniswap is uh, maybe thinking more broadly about my thesis around, or like Kane's thesis or whatever about like consumer apps. And maybe Uniswap will become the de facto consumer app, right? Yeah. I mean, we're thinking about mobile, like we have no penetration of mobile in crypto at all. Yeah. All the penetration is a desktop. Yes. So yeah, mobile wallet should be a thing in the next bull market. I mean, yeah. I think the, the timing, I don't know if it's perfect, but it's good. Timing is good because now we have account abstraction we can build mobile wallets that use the secure enclave to store the, the private keys. Yeah. So security is, is much better now. I've always avoided using mobile wallets in the past because I, I worry about the security. But if you can turn, if you can use secure enclave to store the private yeah. key, which effectively turns the phone 
into a hardware wallet, yeah, I think I wouldn't mind using it. So I wouldn't mind wallet, it either. Mobile wallet will be could be a thing in the next bull market, and that in turn will create new types of consumer products that are mobile first. Hundred percent. Let's just say if you could even use like Apple's keychain, right, to store a part of your shard or or a private key. You know, personally, I trust Apple Apple keychain. I mean, I actually trust Apple for, with a lot of things because they they take privacy to the heart and all the products they're building. So at least from an, like an Apple user perspective, I would definitely trust it. So we talked about what the next bull market could look like, which is yep. a very hard question. But now very let me ask you an even harder question. When will the next bull market come? Oh, I, I mean, I usually ask you for this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I had to guess, it's when Powell turns on the printer again. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you, by the way, but, but when, when does that happen? When does that happen? Well, let's just talk about today's news, like all the macro regulatory FUD, right? Yeah. There's a FUD about like China and US going to war. There's... Um, Wait, what? 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 You know, the FUD... Oh, in, you general, know, in general, in general. Oh, in general, okay, okay. Yeah, right? Yeah. There's that war because of Taiwan, right? Yeah. There's a FUD about, you know, Gary Gensler and the SEC being over-regulating crypto. Mm -hmm. There's a the FUD about interest rates being too high and that the Fed is going to continue ra raising interest rates. What else is there? Hard landing, which Hard is landing. the result of high interest rates, like so, raising interest rates at the fastest speed in history of the Fed. Yes. So those are like the four, right? Yeah. I think the first, as of today, has been cleared. It seems like Blinken, who's a secretary of state, said Taiwan shouldn't have their own independence. <laughs> so yeah. they completely pivoted away from their, and we could talk about this, but I think that's primarily a function of Biden wanting to get reelected again, right? As long as the U.S., or Taiwan doesn't de declare independence, there's no war between China and, and the U.S. Like, people in the West, are, they just don't understand how China works. The line that you do not want to cross when it comes to China is Taiwan and nothing else. Yeah. As long as Taiwan does not unilaterally, or, or the U.S. does not unilaterally declare independence, no war, no hot war. I, I forgot one more, Russia and Ukraine, right? That's, Russia and Ukraine, yeah. Yeah, one more. So that's one, which is a great sign, right? Two is, yeah, so Fed... The Fed like cutting rates or increasing rates over and yep. over again. It seems like for June, uh, they paused, yep. right? Is this the coming, you know, and they said they're not going to cut any interest rates this year. So I could see us pausing for the end of the year. Before. Well, no, no, they, they said they're, they're they pausing say? now, but there will be t between two to four cuts by the end of the year. Is that what they said? Cuts? Yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry, sorry. Hikes. Sorry. Hikes. Not, not oh, hikes. okay. okay. Yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. why they call it hawk, the hawkish pause. <laughs> Which is really funny because the last one was the, the dovish cut. Yeah. Um, but do you think this is psyops? You know, I, I don't know how the how the Fed works, but I, yeah. I listened to uh, to uh, Dragon Miller. Uh, I listened to three of his recent appearances on podcasts, and he's firmly in the heart landing camp by the end of the year uh, in the U.S. I would not bet against Dragon Miller and his thirty. I, I wouldn't either. Decades of of uh, macro trading experience with uh, you know thirty percent annual return. And no down year ever. I will not bet against that. So hard landing by the end of the year. Um, he thinks it's very likely. If that's true, I don't know how the, whether or not hard landing will happen. But if that's true, and I, I do know that the stock market is too high and earnings will go, go down and multiples will, will get compressed. And, and the combination of these two will probably lead a decline in the S&P 500. Or actually, I don't know about S&P 500 because it's still dominated by, by big tech and AI. But certainly in the long tail of stocks, the Russell 2000, and as a result, other risk markets that will ultimately affect crypto. So if we assume that there's hard landing by the end of the year, I think 
there will be tougher times ahead for crypto, for the liquid market. I mean, the, the private market is already pretty much dead. There's no liquidity anymore. Like people are having a really hard time fundraising and VCs are not deploying. They're being super risk averse in this bear market. So with Bitcoin at 25,000 today, I think that there will be tougher times ahead for the liquid market. But if we get a hard landing by the end of the year, I think within a, a few weeks or months, the Fed will cut. And then that brings us to 2024. And I think 2024 will be a great year for crypto. All right. So we have some time, another eight months, more or less. And it's really remarkable how similar every crypto bear market is. The, again, yeah. like the second year of the bear market is, the, as I said, is the year of apathy. Yeah, It's the year where you basically have 365 days to build your bear market position to DCA into a depressed um, into depressed prices. Mm-hmm. And then the third year of the bear market, things start to go up. So last time we had uh, DeFi summer that, that happened during the, uh, the second half or uh, yeah. during the third year of the bear market. And then towards the end of that third year of the bear market, basically the bear market turned into a bull market with the, the Fed printing, started printing money and then Bitcoin yeah. started going up. All the macro hedge funds started piling into crypto, etc. So to summarize, 2023, I think will be tough. And then 2024 will be really good. I mean, was it over the weekend, Friday, um, BlackRock applied to uh, establish a Bitcoin ETF? Yeah. And of the history of all the approvals they've received, of the 500, like there's a stat out there that uh, all the- One, one out of the few hundred ETF applications got denied. Everything else got approved. Yes. And that one that got denied was called non-transparent ETF or, ETF or something. Yeah, it's some bullshit like I've never heard of. <laughs> the, right? the moment you name your ETF some non-transparent stuff, you're going to get denied by the SEC. So um, I think that's the impetus. Like, I think that is what's going to... And there's, <laughs> you know, I love speculators on crypto Twitter. And so someone went back with gold right before the ETF launched and they ran the numbers <laughs> yeah. from when Bitcoin, ETF, uh, when gold ETF launched and to where it went in terms of peak. And it was from like something like $300 to, uh, a share to $2,000 a share after the first ETF launched. So now, this could... I, I, I don't know to what extent Bitcoin ETF impacts the Bitcoin market at this point in time. At this if point, the, right. Yeah. If the Bitcoin ETF got approved five years ago, it would have made a big difference. But today, pretty much anyone who in any macro you know, hedge fund who wants to get exposure to Bitcoin can get it. I think the people who can get access to or exposure to Bitcoin is the retail, you know, their retirement account and stuff like That's that. That's right. And the thing is that Grayscale Trust is like a very bad product, right? It's a horrible product. Like for anyone that wants to get like something that's up to nav that measures the the price of Bitcoin accurately, you can't get that today. And so I do think it'll open up an, a window of, of investors that will allocate based on that. And there are still investors that haven't allocated Bitcoin. So I do think it'll definitely open up the market. I just don't know how big it's going to be. So I do think that will be another headwind, I think, at least from a narrative perspective. I mean, you're already starting to see influencers turning, revving up their engines when it comes to like, <laughs> I think I shared a few tweets with you of why this is going to be such a big thing um, yeah. and why you should be buying now versus later, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, but I feel like... Um, It'll take some time. And I know the uh, over the next couple of weeks, uh, Grayscale is going to, you know, Grayscale has uh, sued the SEC. 
if you remember. For not approving their ETF? Yes. So that's coming to trial very soon, like in the next week or two. Mm -hmm. And with BlackRock launching its ETF and Fidelity now is thinking about maybe launching their own or acquiring Grayscale, apparently. Mm-hmm. There could be something here in the next couple of weeks. And so people are speculating on this narrative. There's also the halving next year. Yeah. Although at, at this point, I don't know how much halving really matters. Yeah, uh, I don't know. The, the, yeah. the, the supply reduction is really small now. Yeah. Hard to say. But overall, I think the biggest driving factor over a time horizon of one or two years is, for better or worse, Jerome J. Powell. <sighs> All roads lead back to Jerome. So they print, market goes up, people start feeling bullish again, optimistic again. There will be more entrepreneurs getting into the space. VCs are going to deploy money more, they'll raise more money, and then the whole flywheel gets um, kicked off again. But, you know, like Arthur Hayes, who's the founder of BitMEX, talked about the next bull market is going to come from China. What do you think about that thesis? Like, okay, Powell printed money, and that's what led to the past couple markets, let's say. Yeah. But could China be the next driver? Of crypto or, or global markets? Crypto. Crypto, I don't think so. Because again, the, the, the retail traders, are, they don't have access to, to crypto trading. It's, it's the institutions, that, and there aren't that many of them. Institutions in Hong Kong. I don't think China will be responsible for the crypto bull market. How about global market? Global markets depends on the time horizon. In the short term, their short term, you know, over the course of months, or at most one or two years, I think it's possible. China is printing now. and They are, yeah. And they cut rates already, right? A few times? Yeah. And, and their market is, is very depressed right now. So Chinese stocks will probably do really well in the coming months. But over the course of five to 10 years, I really don't know. There's reasons to be bearish on China. And there are reasons to be bullish. But if you talk to the average Chinese person in their 20s or 30s who lives in China, mm-hmm. they're far less optimistic than they were 10 years ago, mm. which is very similar to the US, by the way. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, we can spend a whole episode on talking about this as well, but yeah, I really don't know. Cool. How about social media? You know, we've had Lens that's becoming a large part of yep. the conversation, and we're starting to see lots of users migrate to Lens and Farcaster. Yep. I'd say probably Lens, from a high-level perspective, they have over 120,000 to 150,000 user profiles. Yep. And more generally, consumer products, right? Yeah. Consumer products in crypto. Where are we? And are we going to see crypto consumer products truly going mainstream? Because right now what's happening is, I'm sure you've seen this, but the vast majority of startups are building infrastructure. (laughs) Yeah. And you and I are both pretty tired of it. We want to see more. I'm so tired. We want to see more consumer products. But again, this is... This trend happens in every bear market. Every bear market, there's more infrastructure. And then bull market, there's more consumer. The pendulum swings back and forth. But in terms of consumer products, again, I think whether you're a social network or some other type of consumer products, you got to embrace financialization, hyper-financialization and speculation. I think there's absolutely no shame in embracing speculation. Agreed. Anyway, I think we should start talking about crypto social networks in general. Yeah. Why do we want to build social networks on uh, the blockchain? And you know, people have several things over the years, and we should discuss whether or not they actually make sense or not. So people say, for example, that YouTube, for example, takes uh, a lot of uh, has a really big uh, take rate that hurts the creators, um, especially mm-hmm. the long tail of creators. You have to have something like a hundred million views per month in order to make 
$60,000 per year. Wait, how um, many views was that? 100 million. Yeah, um, I mean, that's that's like the order of magnitude of like Mr. Beast, right? I mean, like that's what his average views are. And he's like the top 1%. Yeah. So the long tail of creators will not be able to survive yep. by just being a professional creator on YouTube. But what about the dopamine hits? I mean, I feel like there are a lot of creators that enjoy influencing their communities and they um, indirectly sell their own products. Yeah, right. YouTube is actually being used probably primarily as a marketing channel yes. for for people like you and I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but the hope is that uh, building the crypto network on uh, on the blockchain can reduce yeah. the take rate. Do you think that makes sense? Uh, it can. Uh, ultimately, it will depend on the infrastructure it's built because, I mean, what YouTube and others provide directly to the creators is an efficient platform, right? You don't have to worry about the technology or the infrastructure that's powering all of the growth in, in, on YouTube and, and Facebook and et cetera. So really the creators, all they really have to do is create. And so when I think about like crypto rails, I, I do think that there's some inefficiencies uh, that still hasn't been addressed yet today. You know, if you think about latency, I feel like latency is a big problem in crypto today. Mm-hmm. I think storage, you know, the cost of storage is also quite expensive. Mm-hmm. And so in a perfect world, I think crypto could be a great way to decrease that take rate so that the creators can be empowered to create and earn similarly to like what YouTube is earning. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is it feasible today? Mm-hmm. That would I be mean, one the, of my... the, the hope is that the crypto social network has less power against its users yeah, and therefore has less bargaining power and therefore yeah. doesn't have the uh, unilateral ability to increase the take rate. Um, yeah. But it doesn't have that leverage today. That's the problem, right? Because for creators to create on crypto rails, there's a cost to it. There isn't an existing social graph to tap into one. And then all of the tech side that I mentioned earlier, which is like the cost, onboarding, using wallets, UI, UX. There's just a whole list of things that that we can walk through with Stanny to discuss that I think ultimately could get solved through like some of the upcoming like EIPs, like EIP 4337 and... We talked previously about intense. Maybe that's a part of where we're going next. But I do think there's a whole host of things that need to be solved before we get there. Okay. The other supposed value proposition is uh, that the user truly owns their social graph. That's cool. For example, if I get the platform by Twitter one day, I can bring my over 100,000 followers to another platform. I guess it's an okay value proposition. I think the value proposition is great for people that are controversial, but for people like you and I, <laughs> I'm not that I, controversial anymore. Yeah, we're fine, right? Like, uh, I think we follow the rules and uh, of what the different platforms offer. So, yeah, you know, it's really not a worry for you and I. But you know, for people like I don't know Elon Musk and others that are very controversial, or Kanye West as an example, I think he's the only one that that I've seen that has been banned by almost every platform that's out there. Was it because of what he said about Jews? Yes. I want to tell you a story of a social network that I invested yes. in a few years ago. Wait, uh, you invested in? Yeah, I invested okay. in it as an angel. Okay, okay. Um, a few years ago. It's called Parler. P-A-R-L-E-R. We've used it. Yeah. To follow Kanye West. Oh, Kanye West is on there? He was on there. I believe he acquired it. Oh, he did? Yeah. He acquired Parler. Yeah. But then, oh, so he acquired it. And then I think... Once the whole um, blow up happened with the comments that he made, uh, I think they parted ways. But yeah, he 
quote unquote did acquire it. I, I exited my position, but I didn't know who the buyer was. <laughs> but I anyway, I invested in uh, in Parler a few years ago because I saw all the conservatives were getting the platform by by Twitter left and right. I don't consider myself as a conservative or liberal, but I just saw saw that happening in real time, including Trump himself yeah. getting the platform by Twitter. So I said to myself, there's got to be a Twitter for conservatives. So I invested in, in Parler. And Parler is basically a, a Twitter clone with a different color scheme. So red instead of blue. <laughs> and uh, <It> Makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. And it did okay. I think it grew to maybe eight figures in terms of active users. There's definitely some growth on there. There's some growth, but it just at, at a certain point it just couldn't couldn't grow much more beyond that and just started to plateau. And I think in hindsight I learned a lesson, which is that if you just build a Twitter clone, I think you can expect some reasonable success, but I think it's very hard to build a generational company if you just do a copy pasta of, of Twitter. Because there are only so many Republicans out there, hardcore Republicans yeah. out there. Yeah. Not, not, not the average Republican, but the, the people who are so hardcore enough that they want to leave Twitter to use Parler. And by the same token, I thought of crypto social networks because the vast majority of clients I've used so far are basically the exact same clones of Twitter or, or YouTube yep. or Instagram with very minimal improvements or, or differentiation. And I said to myself, I think these clients might be reasonably successful, but I don't think they'll become generational companies because there are only so many hardcore crypto people. So that was the lesson I learned from Parler. What do you think? Yeah, I'll tell you about some of the things that I'm seeing and hearing about from uh, the newer communities that are, that are you know, starting to come into the space. But high level, I do think these social graphs that we have, you could think of Twitter as this giant social graph, and then you have like sub-social graphs of all the different like topics, right? And so you have all of these that are like simultaneously running and then they often collide with each other, right? And I think that's what makes Twitter so controversial in the first place. And there are going to be times where these communities want to have their own space and uh, they become large enough where these clients start to spin up. And so an example of what you mentioned, Parler, is actually Truth, um, which is where Donald Trump is on. Yep. And to be quite frank, t Truth is doing quite well from a growth perspective because, you know, it is where all of the right-wing influencers and conservatives go to connect with each other. So I do think that the, it'll be very hard to monetize. And maybe that's where crypto comes into space, into this play here, right? Which is like the reason why ad network powered social networks work really well is because at scale, you can, you know, there's a, an ability to earn, right? Because you're able to learn about the user and then sell products based on the users that are interacting with the, the product. But for crypto, maybe that's okay, right? Like uh, maybe monetization isn't a big part of how people users earn revenue. Maybe it's by following and purchasing someone's post. And I'm not saying that's going to be a thing, but maybe I guess where I'm getting at is like scale isn't an issue anymore because that's what traditional web two social networks would use to earn. I think now it's really about deepening these social graphs in its own way where they can create their own clients and the revenue model is going to look very different than the revenue model that we've seen in the Web2 side. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, but. no, that, that brings to a third value proposition of yeah. crypto, which is potentially new monetization models, right? Because Web2 yeah. is ads, 
mostly ads-based monetization and Web Web three. We don't know yet because there's no like <laughs> large scale social network yet. But the hope is there will be new monetization models. But I suppose what kind of new monetization models can you think of? I'll name out the obvious, which is what Lens does today, which is the ability to purchase posts. Like let's just say that you tweeted something that is an NFT in and itself from the back end, right? And I could put an offer or you put an offer or whatever, and I can purchase your NFT and that NFT would be then owned by me. And you as a creator can earn money based on that, right? So the better quality posts that you put, the hope is that more and more people will purchase. There's another one that I just saw recently that Lenster just launched with Superfluid, which is the ability to super follow an influencer, whereby they can charge a monthly fee. Of five dollars, ten dollars, or whatever, and that stream. So the user would pay ten dollars. Let's say that you're a super influencer. I subscribe to you, and I pay you ten dollars a month. That money would be then streamed to your wallet, as an example.、Mm-hmm. So, but the second one is is not new, right? It's not new. Patreon or OnlyFans or whatever. Twitter does this too. Twitter does this too. That's、yeah. right. But the first one is interesting. Is new. Well, it's it's new for it's not new by crypto standard because people have launched NFTs. JPEGs for years now, and people、yeah. can buy those JPEGs. And so, in the case of Lens, it's basically the same thing, except instead of、uh, just a JPEG, it's in the form of a tweet, like a post,、yeah. which can also、yeah. be、uh, an image or, or or something else. Yeah, I suppose you can also build like sound、uh, XYZ on top of Lens. Like on paper, you can build like an NFT、uh, music NFT platform on top of the Lens protocol as well. Right. Tell me more about that. Like,、uh, how so are you, you tweet,、that? you post something on, on Lens, and then that post can link to a song, which is、oh, stored、okay. on Arweave、yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and then that post can be minted as an NFT. So, I think of Lens as a general-purpose social protocol that different types of client can can be built on top of. But this whole idea of minting NFTs and sell it. I don't know how sustainable that is. Well, we've seen this, right? Remember back in the day during the bull market, <laughs> the bu- during the bull market, there's a company called Cent, C E N T, that、uh, ended up tokenizing Twitter posts. And I think one of Jack Dorsey's tweets went viral, and someone bought it for like I don't know a million bucks, eighteen million, like something eighteen million, something ridiculous. Oh my god, maybe、He's、not eighteen, but something、bad. more than than something really really ridiculous, and then it、oh. went to zero. I'm so stressed out for that guy. Eighteen <laughs> million. Oh my god! I guess that's one of the downfalls of、uh, drawbacks of recording something on the blockchain is that you remember that pain for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a badge of honor. <laughs> it's a badge of honor. Generations and generations.、Yeah. Poap as a service. It's Poap as a service. <laughs> But yeah, I'm not sure about Lens、uh, in terms of the monetization strategy. Yeah, I do want to talk about the various. Clients, I've or so on, on Lens. I've probably tried a dozen of clients, and then Farcaster. I've used the the main official one. The Warcast, I've also, whatever. I, I've、yeah. also tried Noster, which is that Jack Dorsey's、yeah. thing. Horrible.、I've、also, tried, <laughs> <laughs> but he's really proud of it. He says there's like he calls Noster one of the very few scalable or one of the few decentralized protocols at scale, which. What is he talking I, about? <laughs> I don't. I don't know what 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 to make of it. But I, I tried Noster. I yeah, didn't、same. like it. It's basically、same. just a, a, a five BTC maxis talking to each other. And they're just it. talking to each other. And then I also tried Blue Sky, which is、uh, the、yes. Twitter 
spin-off of their decentralized protocol. And out of all these different protocols and clients I've tried, the one that I find the most interesting is something that will probably surprise our audience. It's D-Bank. D-Bank? Yes. D-Bank is actually a social network. D-Bank started a few years ago. You and I were angel investors back in the day. Yeah. They started as a sort of a Zapper type of product. So a um, analytics, portfolio analytics. But over time, they turned into a social network. And what I like the most about it is I can search for people I'm interested in, like Jump, for example, or Andrew Kang or whatever. And I can search for their name in D-Bank yeah. and I can see what they do on-chain. Yes. So this feature itself is also not new. So Nansen has it, Zapper has it. I think Nansen also does something, uh, is trying to turn, turn their product into some kind of social messaging product as well internally. But Nansen is very expensive. It's not a consumer product. It's a more of an institutional product. But D-Bank is a consumer product that you can, where you can search for what people are doing on chain, how much they got liquidated, et cetera. So I, I think that is really, really fun. But then you can DM that person. Yep. You can talk to that person on chain and you can pay. I think it's a dollar or something. You could change, you could change the price to whatever you You can want. change the price, yeah. yeah. And this feature itself is also not new because back in the day, Biology built this thing, which was called earn.com. Yes. But I think Biology was way too ahead of its time. That product was too early. People didn't Bitcoin have, was, isn't fast enough either, right? At that time, like it takes... Bitcoin wasn't out. fast enough. Yeah. And there weren't enough people who had a, a crypto wallet installed. But today you have a critical mass of people who do have a crypto wallet that yep. can pay people before talking to them. Yep. And so the, the recipient can accept that money and view the message and reply. So you're basically monetizing the recipient's attention. The recipient has a way to monetize their own attention. So it seems like there are many like emergent apps that may look like one product, but they're all targeting the same user base, right? Yes. So D-Bank is one, maybe Zapperify indirectly is one because they are now like, if you, you use Zapper, like they highlight all of the influencers that are active on chain, right? Yeah. And you can click on it and, and then you can connect and whatnot. You have Nansen indirectly, right? It's more of a private version of an on-chain activity for, for people, right? So like you can follow different people and influencers, so-called smart money, right? And then now you have Lens. And then there's another startup, which we won't name just yet, that's also targeting something very similar. And so it seems like there's different flavors of this. And the question then becomes, is there going to be a dominant platform or is it just going to be different versions that will attract different communities around these types of like front ends, as an example? Because D-Bank is a very different, like when I think about D-Bank and Lens, I think of them at first, very different, right? Mm -hmm. One is more about something that you're used to today, like a Web 2 version of social media on, on Web 3. Mm -hmm. D-Bank is a very crypto-native way of thinking about social media, which is primarily following them based on the activities that they've done on chain. Yep. The reason why I like D-Bank out of all the more well-known crypto social networks is it goes back to the earlier point that I brought up, which is that if you just build a Twitter clone, I find it very hard to become a generational company or protocol or a product. And D-Bank out of everyone is the only one that I've felt is truly crypto native. Is You can do stuff on there that you can't do without crypto. Yep. Because you can see what someone you're interested in is doing on chain and then talk to them on chain. You know, um, social media on, on crypto reels, although it seems like it's a very novel new idea, you know, it's been tried before, right? 
And uh, let's let's take our viewers back. When was this? Like five years ago, six years ago, twenty seventeen. Um, huh? that, that era, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a startup called Steam. <laughs> Do you remember Steam? That, um, Dan Larimer's uh, fifth project. Yes, and Dan uh, Dan Larimer, if you guys don't know, was the founder of EOS, which raised four billion dollars in, in its heyday, and twenty other different projects. Yeah. Yeah. Including uh, what's it? Was it Voice.com? Do you remember? Yes, that? it was Voice.com. Like, the, no, they acquired Voice.com. I think US the, acquired Voice.com. The, I think they acquired a domain name for like five million dollars, something ridiculous. I think it was a lot more than five million dollars. Yeah, I'll take a look. But it was some <laughs> insane amount. Yeah. And so maybe we could learn from Steam and see what they did right, what they did wrong, because. There was a point where I believe I spent some of my time on Steam, but it went wrong pretty quickly. And I think we can talk a bit about it, but maybe if you want to give uh, our audience a quick high level on what Steam is. I mean, Steam, I didn't use it, but I remember looking, I, I didn't use it as a writer, as a creator, Yeah, but I used it just to see what's going on there. And Steam was basically yet another Twitter clone with a very big twist, which is that when you post something, you can get rewarded. In the Steam token, and, you know where this could go, right? <laughs> and this is exactly what exactly what fundamentally went wrong with Steam. All these DeFi protocols from DeFi Summer were not the grandfathers of liquidity mining. It was Steam. Steam was the OG of liquidity mining. But instead of getting paid in tokens for using a DeFi protocol, you get paid in tokens for using a social media and by posting stuff on there. And that's what went wrong with Steam. The token sync. There was no token sync. There was only supply. So people were rewarded in, in the Steam token, but there was no demand for the Steam token itself. So over time, people would just farm the tokens by posting stuff, and then they would sell it immediately. Exactly what people did, like what people did during DeFi Summer, during all those all the DeFi liquidity mining programs. And then over time, the Steam token just went to zero. And when it went to zero, there was no more incentive for posting. And that's how it died. Some interesting um, add-ons to this is they would pay you for not only posting, but also upvoting. So you could imagine everyone's content would get posted and it would get upvoted. <laughs> yeah. And in its heyday, it had up to 1.2 million users, monthly active users. How many? 1.2 million. That's more than Lens today. Yeah. Because Lens has, what, like 20,000 daily I, I, active? Yeah, I think it's 20,000 monthly active users. Farcaster has 11 million monthly active users. There's a, about 125,000 profiles that have been set up on, on Lens today. So those oh, are some of the Farcaster, Farcaster, 11 million or 11,000? I'm sorry, 11,000 monthly yeah, active yeah. users. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. 11,000, that, that makes more yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. And that's like the current stats today. And I think yeah. the reason why Steam did so well is the fact that people could make money. And so I remember seeing like a ton of YouTube videos of people attracting retail to Steam because yeah. they could earn tokens, right? Yeah. And the reason why YouTube influencers want to push Steam is so that they could push the price of Steam, right? And you had this like weird <laughs> cyclical effect of like influencers bringing more and more people into Steam and then these people farm the Steam token and you know the rest is pretty much the way it typically plays out. As bad as the Steam token was designed, I think the financial incentives is something that current crypto social networks are missing. What do you mean by that? Current social networks in crypto, they, well, well actually taking an even step back, everyone is talking about how crypto should move beyond the speculative phase into more of a utility phase. 
To me, that's the most uh, midwit take of all time yes. in crypto. Speculation is the most interesting thing, the most, maybe not the most important thing, but certainly the most interesting thing that, that crypto brings to consumers as a new experience. Why do you want to get rid of it? It's what makes the world go around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Oh, and, and there's this tweet by, by Nikita Beer. Are you talking about the lizard brain one? With exactly. The Yes. Yeah. Okay. I have seen that one. So Nikita is the like a legend in consumer products, not in crypto, but just general consumer products. And he's so legendary because he built the same product twice within a span of like, what, five years. And then the first one, he sold it to uh, Facebook. Facebook. And the second one, he sold it to Discord. Discord. Yep. Exact same product. <laughs> and it's... Um, <laughs> And it was in a matter like I remember I used the app. I mean, it's primarily for Gen Zers and not for a boomer like me. But it's called Gas. Yep. And uh, he built it out in six months and sold it. Yeah. Okay. So here's the tweet: There will never be a consumer product that takes off purely for political reasons, like being censorship resistant or decentralized banking. Think of consumers as lizard brains. They mindlessly tap on rectangles on a screen <laughs> for basic needs like making money or finding a date. Well, maybe crypto, is, <laughs> crypto may not be able to help you to find a date, but it's certainly there to help you to, to make money. And now you're, what, you, you want to remove that feature from social networks, from your consumer product? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I think uh, the pendulum, like I see crypto as like a pendulum, right? You know, pre-bull market, you know, the pendulum was swinging like, you know, hey, you know, let's just bring in whatever the crypto rails offer in a way that could bring more users into space and then once peak bull market hit you know there was just too many inf uh grifters or pumpers or whatever you want to call it and now the pendulum is switching back to core ideologies of like let's just bring a build a great product but really we should be right in the middle which is like we should leverage what's the speculative nature of crypto but then also the ideologies of building a great product that people want to use right by the way that, that pendulum happened for crypto games as well and it's so funny yeah. during the bull market you had products like stepan or axie which by the way i think are fundamentally interesting products they're still they are, went yeah. viral because of the ability for people to make money mm -hmm. but then then there was some flaw with the token design they went down and then a year later stepan and axie brought a whole wave of quote unquote crypto gaming entrepreneurs into the space yeah. due to their early success. And then a year later, the pendulum just swung to the other way. No one wanted to build fully crypto games anymore, like crypto native games. Everyone is building quote unquote web 2.5 games. <laughs> and I'm really, really annoyed by that term. I am too. And so the pendulum has swung to the completely op opposite direction, extreme. And I think we should at least go back a little bit towards the crypto native features. So point being, I think the same thing for, for is the case for uh, social networks, crypto social networks. I think crypto so social networks should fundamentally embrace the hyper-financialization as opposed to getting rid of it. Agreed. I wanted to also bring up equity, not token, right? Do you remember that? Yeah. Which is during Ethereum's first like uh, foray into the, into the wild, was around the 2017-18 timeframe. And back then, everybody was launching their own token. And it was an easiest way to raise, build community, or whatever you want to call it. Once the bear market hit, everyone pointed blame at Ethereum and said, Ethereum is at fault. They allowed the creation of all these tokens and ICOs that ultimately hurt the end users. But really, it wasn't Ethereum, nor was it anyone else. It was just the people. And, and during the bear market, or during the bull market, everybody was you know, 
there was a lot of euphoria as an example. So once that bear market started to set in, I specifically remember venture capital firms not investing in token. They thought it was a scam and that it should be purely equity only. And there was points where I've seen venture capital firms raise funds by stating that they will never invest in tokens because you know that's not something that we we encourage or whatnot. And that's a very clear example of how pendulums have swung from one side to the other. And I feel like we're going to see many forms of that now in different sectors, like play to earn for games. I still think it's very, very, like I, there's some guys that are tweeting about this. I think I shared it with you where people have made a lifestyle change because of Steppen, because of the ability to earn money. And I think there's something very powerful there. And you see this with other areas of, you know, other sectors as well. So I just want to highlight that point that I just think these are all cyclical. And now we're just seeing this over and over again until the point where the masses do adopt some of these products. So we talked about a lot today, uh, Chow. So we talked about ultimately what's going to lead to the next bull run, right? Um, so we talked about the regulatory FUD that's inflicting the, the crypto markets. We talked about what apps could potentially lead the next bull run. Uh, we also talked about you know consumer apps like Lens. And overall, I feel like I'm feeling bullish. Like, I mean, slowly, not 100% like mega bull with my lights, laser eyes, and like sailor. But um, <laughs> I mean, God, sailor's such a perma bull. I just, but uh, either way, I'm feeling good and optimistic. I'm, we're still seeing incredible founders start building the space. And so I'm, I'm getting excited for 2024. How about you? I just feel a, a very unusual kind of calmness, emotional, psychological, intellectual calmness. And um, I think because you sold the top. <laughs> <laughs> Not nearly as close as 40, 40 was it 4,900? <laughs> but I, I sold a ton. Um, not at a great price, but I sold a ton. <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> um, but also because, like I said, I think it takes three bear markets to really develop this immunity yeah. towards the bear market. We, you and I know for a fact that a lot of people are feeling a lot of pain right now, um, from founders to investors to employees to other professionals in the space. People are thinking of pivoting away you know, into AI or whatever. But I just can't think of any more contrarian time to be in crypto right now. And that's why I fundamentally feel calm about being in crypto, because no one cares about crypto anymore. And I just feel really great. To be in a space that no one, no one really cares about, I can think about things more calmly. There's no more distractions. In the bull market, yep. it was really, the last bull market was extremely stressful. It was very stressful. And there, and there were too so many, many trends. noises. Like now if a founder comes to us, like they, they apply to Alliance, we know that if you're still building in the bear market, we know that you're probably going to be here for a long time. Yep. But when we see a founder from Fang trying to build a crypto product in the middle of the bull market, we feel more worried. We feel more skeptical. Yep. So I do think generational opportunities are here, is, is what I would say, both from a venture capital perspective and, and a public markets perspective. So founders that are listening, if you're building the space, you have a shot. Well, um, I think that caps it. Uh, great conversation uh, about the state of things in the market. Hit subscribe if you haven't already, and we'll get back to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Good Game. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next week.